This is MIT Technology Review. Tonight, we are learning more about a cyber attack forcing the shutdown of one of the main pipelines supplying gas and diesel fuel to the East Coast. The group is called DarkSide. They are allegedly the group behind this attack on the pipeline. Panic buying, fueling gas shortages in the Sunshine State. And tonight, the governor is reacting, declaring a state of emergency. John, I can confirm that Colonial Pipeline did, in fact, pay a ransom. This, according to a source familiar with the situation, Colonial Pipeline paying a ransom to the criminal hackers. We had cyber defenses in place, but the unfortunate reality is that those defenses were compromised. That's Joseph Blount. He's the CEO of Colonial Pipeline. He's speaking at a congressional hearing about the attack. The attack forced us to make difficult choices in real time that no company ever wants to face. Colonial had informed the authorities right away but the attackers had access to confidential company data and they were threatening to release it. So, without informing the FBI, the company paid the ransom, 75 Bitcoin. At the time, that was worth about four and a half million dollars. I made the decision to pay and I made the decision to keep the information about the payment as confidential as possible. It was the hardest decision I've made in my 39 years in the energy industry. And I know how critical our pipeline is to the country and I put the interests of the country first. I kept the information closely held because we were concerned about operational safety and security, and we wanted to stay focused on getting the pipeline back up and running. I believe with all my heart, it was the right choice to make. After a week of gas shortages, operations resumed. But for many people, it was the first time they were affected by an attack on a company they'd never even heard of. The threat continues to evolve. The sophistication of the players continues to evolve. Their ability to compromise systems continually evolves. And I think in combination with the government, together combined, we have a much better ability as Americans to thwart the threat of cyber attacks. This is The Extortion Economy, a five-part series from Tech Review and ProPublica about the money, people, and technology fueling the ransomware epidemic. I'm Meg Marco. Part two, the bad actors. If you're in an industry that is a critical link in the supply chain of someone else, you're a target in particular because you've got all the more reason to pay. Chester Wisniewski works for Sophos, a company that builds security products. He didn't work on the pipeline incident, but he has worked with other companies attacked by the group that hacked Colonial. They're called DarkSide. They are a what we call a ransomware as a service group, meaning the actual attackers who broke into Colonial are not the same people who wrote the malware. So this malware group basically leases their malware to individual affiliates, they call them. It operates very much like Amway. It's like a pyramid scheme kind of thing where they... You know, you, the people at the bottom infect all the victims, and then the money slowly trickles up the pyramid to the people at the top. In his experience, the group is tenacious, and they do their homework. These guys are very difficult to defend against. They're, they're one of the more sophisticated groups, and they also have a tendency to really research their victims well, meaning the victims we investigated, they would have been inside of their network for two or three weeks 
before they triggered the ransom attack. So they had two or three weeks to do reconnaissance on all the different systems and computers and what they might control, where the backups are, where the sensitive data is worth stealing. All that kind of stuff takes time, right? Because these are human-operated attacks. By the time the actual attack is in progress, the enemy knows the company's systems better than most of its employees. And just in case the encryption part doesn't persuade you, right? Maybe you've got backups of all your files. Well, then you're not going to pay. Ah, well, what if I say I'm going to release all the HR data and social security numbers of all your employees? Now maybe you'll pay, right? So they kind of focused on refining this social angle. Some of them are literally calling the employees of victims and saying, by the way, you should tell your IT people they really ought to pay because I have all of your you know, tax records from the last 10 years as an employee and health information, and I'm going to publish it all publicly if your IT department doesn't take me seriously. In the case of Colonial, the attackers found a way in through a system that was supposed to have been decommissioned. By the time the attack was in progress, it was too late to stop it. One of the first things you do when a ransom attack hits your IT network is you immediately stop using email or any other electronic communications because the criminals are monitoring it. So I don't care if it's Slack or Teams or Zoom or Outlook or Gmail, like you stop doing all that because the criminals probably are observing and you don't want them to see you talking to your lawyers about whether you want to negotiate a ransom or all these kinds of things. But if you stop all that communication, suddenly the humans have to operate that pipeline are literally writing handwritten notes and calling each other's cell phones, trying to keep it operating. It's very dangerous when it's not something that you do day to day. That's an emergency backup plan for when the hurricane hits, right? There are three stages to a ransomware attack. First, the attacker must gain access and learn the system. Then they carry out the attack, either by locking down the systems or by taking valuable data to hold hostage or sell or both. And finally, they must manage the negotiation and payment. So right now, I'm going to share my screen. What I'm going to do real quick is I'm going to show you what, for example, what credentials are available on underground markets. Alan Liska is an intelligence analyst at Recorded Future. He spends a lot of time thinking about that first stage of the process, how ransomware groups gain access to systems. I'm the guy that figures out how you could hack into your school to change your grades and then tells the school what they need to do in order to stop that from happening. Can I still go back and hack my grades? So the the answer is yes. It's actually simpler than you think, which was what scared the teacher. So when I went in to do the talk, I had to sign in at the receptionist desk. I live in the D.C. area. The receptionist had an Alex Ovechkin bobblehead, was wearing a Capitals jersey and so on. And so I told the students, if I wanted to break into your school, I'm guessing that receptionist that sits in the front desk has access to all of your grades. What I would do is I would go compose a phishing email saying, hey, teacher appreciation week, here's your chance to get two free tickets to a Capitals game. Just click on this link. And then I would go get some subway, wait for her to you know, answer the email and wait for her to click on the link, install the malware. And then I would just redirect myself through her computer connection, see when she logs in, capture her username and password that she logs into the grading system. And then I would use those the same credentials from her computer to log in and change my grade. For the record, I have not hacked into my high school and changed my grades. My very mediocre GPA is 100% authentic. Liska spends a lot of time on the websites where ransomware groups recruit new talent and buy information. 
dark web sounds really scary, but it's just a bunch of people like us just doing, you know, in, in this case, doing things that are illegal, but with all the same histrionics and pettiness that, you know, happens on Twitter, on Facebook, on wherever. Right now, he's giving us a tour of one of these websites. You guys want to see a Russian hacking form? Yep. All right. How is your Russian? Uh, possibly as poor as it could be. Okay, good. That Well, that makes two of us. One of the reasons why ransomware has grown so big in Russia is you have a very educated audience, right? The, you know, Russia has some of the best schools in the world. Problem is, you get out of school, you have a very technical education. There are no jobs in Russia. So ransomware is, uh, or cybercrime in general, is a, you know, becomes a viable option. If you can break into a computer network, you can make money. But no one person can take on every aspect of a major ransomware attack. Like any growing business, they have to specialize in order to be efficient. So if I have to do everything... If, if, I'm, if, if I start my own ransomware and I have to create the ransomware, I have to build the portal, I have to then go find targets and all that other stuff, maybe I could do, if in a good year, I could do 10, 15 targets, right? And that's great. Maybe I make a couple million dollars, but I want to make real money. So what I do is I don't worry about getting initial access. I let somebody else do that for me and then I buy it from them. What makes me particularly good at this? I have no idea, honestly. I am as surprised as you are. Like suddenly, like one day people called me a ransomware expert and I was just like scratching my head and thought, uh, okay. Fabian Wosar studies ransomware groups. He calls them families. He means family more in the sense of a Linnaean taxonomy than a crime family, but the metaphor works either way. It's, I think it's probably borrowed from biology, where just species who are related to each other are called like families. And the term ransomware family or virus family or malware family even, they just are used to refer to certain types of ransomware or like specific ransomware samples that are all related to each other, that share codes that are essentially the same thing, just slightly changed or modified. So that's probably where the term family comes from. And I can't take credit for like introducing the term, that term family in connection with like computer viruses, really. I'm pretty sure it actually predates my birth. So yeah, I can't take credit for it. It's just like a term we kind of like to use. So when a new family emerges, he gets to work. Whenever there's like a new ransomware family, I will take it apart, figure out exactly what they are doing and how they are doing it. And then looking for mistakes they made that could allow us to decrypt the data for free or could allow us to figure out who they are or where the service they are using are located and hand these details over to law enforcement agencies all over the world so they can hopefully try and catch these uh, criminals. Out of the first ransomware family I kind of got involved in, it suddenly turned into like a dozen families. I, I analyzed and took apart and looked for flaws. And then now it's probably in the thousands at this point. So 
there were way, way more victims than anyone could have ever imagined, honestly. And it kind of continued from there, really. In one sense, Wosar and the ransomware groups are engaged in adversarial software development. They create the product, he breaks it. Then they fix the bugs. Every time the cycle is completed, the ransomware gets better. Obviously, ransomware threat actors, they do kind of iterate over the tools they use just as any other software developer would. That means they improve over time. And while early versions of ransomware often do have bugs that can be exploited to recover the data for free, over time, all these kind of bugs get, uh, get fixed. So eventually, after a couple of iterations, you have a pretty robust ransomware, so to say, pretty secure ransomware, where all these different techniques and flaws that we find have all be ironed out. And um, yeah, the ransomware is eventually secure. And if the ransomware can't be cracked, or if the group takes possession of sensitive data and is threatening to release it, all that's left to do is negotiate. It was sort of a cliche startup. I literally started it in a coffee shop and lived in my friend's unfinished basement and ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> for three years while I built the business. This is Curtis Minder, CEO and co-founder of GroupSense. The company does cyber intelligence and reconnaissance, but a big part of his job is negotiating with the bad guys in our story. He ended up negotiating ransomware deals by accident, when a ransomware negotiation expert failed to show up to a meeting he'd scheduled with one of his clients. I, I did not know what I was doing, but, but the results were really good. And the, the cyber insurance company and the law firm that were involved in that case called me and said, hey, <laughs> you, you had a better result than most of the time, you, you know, that when we work with other folks on this, can you, can you help us with some more of these? And I sort of reluctantly agreed. And, and then it became, it sort of snowballed and it became like almost an everyday thing. So now you realize that you are good at this. Like, how do you lean into that? What did you do? I just study. So I, I read books and I watched master classes and I called people that I knew that worked for the FBI and had done no, formal negotiation training or had actually negotiated with hostages. I made phone calls. I did, and I just did this while I was doing it, like real time. <laughs> like I was doing it during the day and at night I was figuring out how I'm supposed to do it and they, their patterns, right? They, they use a playbook. And after you've done enough of them, you can, <laughs> there are some exceptions, right? But there's some outliers. But uh, after you've done enough of them, they're pretty repetitive and you kind of know where, what you're doing. <laughs> By this point, he has conducted many negotiations and he's run into the same ransomware groups. We're definitely talking to the same people many, many times. And they may not know it's us or they may know, I don't, you know, sometimes they might know. I don't know. <laughs> so they're, you know, this is like a business for them. It's very much run like a business. Yeah, very much. He studied the transcripts of the failed negotiations that he'd been brought in to fix. By doing this, he learned not to disrespect or antagonize them. He learned not to lie. We're going to approach this as if it's a business transaction. We're going to treat them respectfully. And, and when they step over the line, we will tell them, and they do, you know, we'll, we'll call them out when they're wrong. And there, you can build a, a back and forth that's, with mutual respect you know, even over a short period of time through these chats. And, and so, yeah, you know, it's, it's really approached as a business, a business transaction. As a negotiator, it's his goal to lower the amount of ransom the victim has to pay. My job is to get them to, to lower the number, and, and we do that 
reliably and consistently. But and I, I can't take full credit for that either because they set that number almost like the used car salesman, you know, with the marker on the windshield, knowing that that number is not the number that they're going to pay. They they set it artificially high. They're expecting to come down off that number. We asked him to tell us how it works. You know, the first person you talk to is very junior. They're probably a salaried employee, right? And they are authorized only to basically validate who the victim is that is calling in, you know, who's doing the chat and maybe offer the first amount. It depends on the group whether who does that. And very quickly, you'll see a shift in the language patterns. And that's how you know you're talking to a different individual. And there's like a, the middle person is the negotiator, right? And, the, and so that person will, will, it will just negotiate. And, and occasionally they will, sometimes they'll actually say like, I, I am not approved to give you this level of discount. Let me go talk to my manager. Like you're in the car dealership or something and we're like, okay, you know, go talk to your manager and get back to me. And then sometimes at the end, they'll bring in the closer, right? And the closer is somebody who is good at, at, at sealing a deal. And you, that person, as far as we can tell, probably speaks English pretty well. And then we can tell in the, in the language pattern. So they're more senior in the organization and maybe even, you know, running it, who, who knows who they are. But they, they, so sometimes you'll deal with two to three individuals in the process. And Minder says that sometimes the ransomware even comes with technical support. After you've made a deal with them, sometimes they'll offer support. Certain groups will offer support on the decryption process, you know, tech support, basically. They're terrible. <laughs> they don't even know how their own stuff works sometimes. I mean, it's a mess. They're absolutely terrible. I mean, you, you're not not describing a software company. Yeah, it's very, it's very, like you could get the same, you know, from your antivirus company, you could get the same experience. He says the hacking groups take themselves very seriously and will even try to phrase the agreement like a legal document. And we do, we say like, this is what we're agreeing. This is what you're doing in response to that. This is the time frame. Like we put that all out and they will, they will try to make a legal version of this, which is funny. It's like they went on legal zoom and they tried to make like a document. So it'll say, whereas, and therefore in capital letters, you know, and they'll paste it into the chat. Like this is our agreement, but that's not enforceable anywhere. That's totally pointless. But this perception of ransomware operating as a normal business is real, even with the victims. I've also seen victims, companies and CEOs who have paid the ransom, as in from ransomware. They have got maybe all or part of their data back and they have felt not very happy, shall we say, with the service provided by the ransomware group in terms of returning their data. And they've actually gone online and written reviews of how the ransomware group was as a sort of service review, a bit like you might do on TripAdvisor on, uh, or Trustpilot. That's security expert Lisa Forte. And um, I've had a couple of people who've said to me, oh yeah, no, well, they had some really good reviews, but they didn't return my data, so I wrote them a really bad review. And you sort of think that we're at this point where you don't, I'm not sure that everyone realises that they're a victim of crime. And it's almost like this really strange internet transaction where someone takes your data and then you pay them and you get it back. Because to me, you have essentially been mugged, like if someone stole your handbag whilst you're walking down the street. Yet a lot of people don't see it like that. While things may seem professional and businesslike for those who are negotiating with the ransomware groups on their terms, people who cost the attackers a lot of money see a very different side like Fabian Mosar. Our estimates are we prevent more than 3.5 billion US dollars from going to ransomware threat actors. 
So they have a vast interest in stopping us from doing what we are doing because we are hurting their business in like a very fundamental and a very meaningful way. So there have been a lot of very unflattering and like, quite frankly, very angry and upset messages that they left behind in the ransomware code that were directed towards me. Vast amounts, it's okay, Kaylee. Vast amounts of insults all over the place. There have been attempts trying to figure out where exactly I live. At one point on LinkedIn, I had the rough area uh, where I lived on there. And I got like threatening messages essentially saying, oh yeah, we, we have friends at the place where you live and you should pay attention to other ransomware families and ignore ours. Things along those lines. I can live quite anonymously and sort of off the grid with me not having to constantly worry whether or not the next person that's knocking on my door is going to be like some some criminal that got hired to 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 break my legs and, and hands, right? Or whether or not it's just the neighbor asking for a couple of eggs and some milk. And it's like one of the reasons why I kind of live a very private kind of life and don't go outside very, very often. Or why I don't have like a webcam on right now, even, right? Next time on The Extortion Economy, what happens when the hackers get hacked? This series is produced by Emma Silicons, Tate Ryan Mosley, and Anthony Green. It's inspired by reporting by Renee Dudley and Daniel Golden from ProPublica. We're edited by Bobby Johnson, Michael Riley, Matt Honan, and Robin Fields. Our mix engineer is Eric Gomez with help from Rebecca Weinman and theme music by Jacob Gorski. The executive producers of the Extortion Economy podcast are me and Jennifer Strong. I'm Meg Marco. Thanks for listening. Listening.